And so let's read it and let this book show us who, who God is. This is God's word. It says, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. But those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And this is God's word. It's true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would come and, and show us the gospel and how it binds us together uh, as, as brothers and sisters. So show us, too, how you defended the, the truth of the gospel. You defended our freedom through Paul long before we were born. And may, may this truth of your grace set us free. Set us free from, from our own individual slavery. Set us free from our fear of, of other people. And set us free from the law and sin that you would do your, your sanctifying work in us. Use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I started saying this meeting probably doesn't seem as important to you today as it should. It probably seems a little bit distant because it's history. But if you read some of the other, um, I don't know if you have the NIV or the New Living Translation, just the way they talk about it, this was a meeting that Paul was anxious about. And it says in, that Paul was afraid, not that he was wasting not that he thought he was wrong, but he says, I was afraid that I might be running in vain, wasting my time. So he's, I don't think it's overstating it to say that if when these guys got to Jerusalem, if, if Titus was forced to be circumcised, and Peter and James and John decided to side with these false brothers, if they just wimped out in the face of the pressure, then Christianity would not have exploded as fast as it did. We would have ended up with two completely different understandings of Christianity. One that's going to look extremely Jewish, uh, following the Old Testament laws, and then the freedom then that we're going to describe later. Which would then affect us, who I think most of us here are Gentiles. <laughs> we, there wouldn't have been the unity in the, in the early church if Paul had not stood firm the way he did. Which means this, these things happen for us. 
And so this whole thing could have fallen apart because what's at stake is, one, your understanding of Jesus. There is a non-Christian way to talk about Jesus. Paul's going to show us that. And two, it's going to affect the Christian life, affect your freedom. Think about it this way. How many of you like bacon? (laughs) Or barbecue ribs? Those would be considered unclean. You couldn't eat them. Or you couldn't eat with your Jewish Christians who were, who were right? It would, it would separate the way you just interact with everybody, Christian or not. Right? Your, your favorite clothes, are they made out of two different kinds of materials? <laughs> You'd have to give them up. You know, if your pet dies or you have to go to a funeral that day or... If you ever have to just come across roadkill, I mean, you do anything that interacts with death, it makes you unclean. It affects your freedom. So you're saying, is it the truth of the gospel is at stake here, but, but also our ability to interact with one another. I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, just picture how different your life would be if you constantly had to worry about these Old Testament ceremonial laws that we're going to talk about. When you go to work, you wouldn't be able to eat with your Gentile co-workers. Because you don't want to be unclean, because if you're unclean, you're not allowed into church. You're not, you're not allowed, you didn't have the direct access into the very heart of God. You wouldn't really be able to eat with them, you wouldn't really be able to relax with them. It would change dramatically the way you live your life. See, you'd be like Peter, going back and forth, trying to live in two different worlds. It'd be very difficult. So freedom's at stake. I mean, cultural freedom, too. I mean, this is huge. If Titus is forced to be circumcised, he's a a Gentile, a non-Jew, there'll be all kinds of pressure to look and act and behave like a Jew, which means our Christianity would look very Jewish, and it wouldn't have had the freedom to go into all the world, the Americas, Africa, Asia, and worship the same God, but have some differences. It, really, Christianity would have looked like Islam, if I could put it that way. If you, I don't know if you've ever been to a mosque, but even here in the states where we speak English, if you want to understand God, you have to understand Arabic to understand him the best. It's a, it's a, a very cultural expression of understanding who God is and how to worship him. And so if you want to under, understand him best in the Islamic world, it's going to be, you're going to be living a very Arabic-looking life. That kind of culture. Right? And that, that's what makes the gospel so amazing, is it had this freedom to go into all the world, um, to allow people to be African and Christian, to allow people to be um, Hispanic and Christian at the same time. They didn't ha- there were things that were challenged, but it didn't have to look like one particular place at one particular time in the world. Right? Cultural freedom. You can get, right now, as a Christian in Christ, you can go to anywhere in the world and experience someone's hospitality and eat whatever they put in your plate. Right. So in the Old Testament, you couldn't eat insects, certain ones. In Uganda, where, where I was, they would just pick, pick some of these flies, these bugs, and just, just pop them in their mouth. Right. Couldn't do it. It was a snack. The kids loved it. Um, if, you know, if doesn't matter what it is. You go to Scotland, you can eat haggis. You can think of all these different foods that, that might gross you out, but that, that, that have the freedom to build relationships around food. Is, that is something Christ died for. 
to build relationships across cultures in Christ. Emotional freedom's at stake. I mean, have you ever been to someone's house where you can't relax because they're ob so obsessed with how clean it is? I mean, that, that was my step-grandmother, at least my perception of her when I was younger. I mean, she, the house was always immaculate. <laughs> Super clean, so as a kid, running around, I always felt like I was going to make a mess and get in trouble. And the gospel is the good news that, that you are clean. God's forgiven us in Christ, and it, it gives us this emotional security to know that, that God always has our back in him. So really, your assurance of salvation is at stake here in this meeting. Right, so you're getting the idea. This is, this is a big deal. We need to look at this. We need to understand the theology behind it. We need to understand and be able to articulate, like Paul, what the gospel is, so that when we come across different expressions of the gospel, we can say that's, that is true or that is not true. And also to know that we have an immense amount of freedom to interact with one another and the world in Christ. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the conflict. We need to understand the confrontation. We're going to do some history. This will be some teaching in the Old Testament. But then we want to apply the principles that Paul teaches. I think it will be helpful for us. So let's look at it. Let's understand this confrontation. The first thing you have to notice is Paul really is not afraid that his gospel is, is not true the thing he's been preaching. Because right, it, it says as after 14 years, it's really it's been about 18 years since his conversion. And then he goes down for, for validation, so to speak, from the apostles, right? To, to, to have a public demonstration of fellowship in the gospel. They're speaking and teaching the same truths. Right. And so Paul's saying that the, the reality that we are loved and forgiven, accepted by God because of what Jesus did, Justification by faith alone. That's the truth. Nothing needs to be added to it. That's not what he's worried about. What he's worried about is whether or not these false teachers are going to be able to follow him everywhere he goes and then use the other apostles to undermine everything he's doing. That's what's happened in Galatia. They showed up and they said the apostles in Jerusalem are better apostles than Paul because they knew Jesus better. They seemed to be more important. They are more important, so listen to us. We have a better gospel than Paul. And so Paul said, no, we need to get these things worked out. God sent him to get these things worked out. He went according to a revelation. And so Paul goes down, and he brings Titus, which is fantastic. <laughs> right? Two Jews, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, a Gentile, go down together as a visible picture of what the gospel is supposed to do. It's a small picture of what the church should look like, diverse, people of all tribes, tongues, and nations together. I mean, probably the equivalent would be uh, a white Christian bringing an African-American brother in Christ to a church in the Jim Crow South to say, this is how the church should look, and you have to acknowledge the truth. Not to cause a ruckus, but to demonstrate boldly, courageously what what the gospel tells us to do. So you look at this then, it seems like there were two meetings. One that was public where other people were allowed to, to come in, where these false brothers were, were arguing with Paul. And then there was also 
a private meeting between Paul and Barnabas and Titus and the, the apostles, James, Cephas, uh, James, Peter, and John. What's great, as Paul just said, we didn't budge a moment. There was no wishy-washy. He was not scared at one lick of what these people thought of him. All for us. And so we've got to ask, what kind of things were these false brothers saying? What were they arguing for? What were they teaching that was so attractive? Because they really did have other followers. It wasn't just one group of people. This was a threat to the unity of the church. As you see, the biggest threats to the church often come from within the church. But we read it in Acts 15. This is, these are the kind of things they were setting, saying. That unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And you have to keep the law of Moses. Right? They added to the gospel. Or even more specific, you look at verse 5 of Acts 15, where they, they said it's necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. And so the, the specific arguments, I mean, I've been hinting at it all along, but, but what they're saying is, you're saved by the grace of Jesus, he died and rose, now you belong to God, but if you want to stay in, you have to keep the law of Moses, because that's how you're, you really are justified to prove yourself. And circumcision is connected to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, which I'll explain what they mean. Because Paul was not teaching that you could do whatever you want because God loves you. He didn't take away moral obligations. We're going to read it in the end of the book where he says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. One word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God set you free that you might love your neighbor. And the best expression of what love looks like is found in the moral law. So we're going to talk about what that means. But, but really, how could these guys be so convincing? What, was, what were the arguments they were making? And can you, could you actually push back against them? Would you stand with Paul? What's so appealing about their arguments? And so I want to talk like a Judaizer, like one of these false brothers, and see if you can push back in your mind. Because what they did is they would go back to places like Genesis 17 and say, Abraham was commanded by God to circumcise all the males in the household. And it was a covenant for Abraham and all of his offspring after him, everyone who was going to be a child of Abraham. And it's an everlasting covenant. Everlasting is a long time. So this is important. Apparently God thinks it's important. And when you get to verse 14 of chapter 17, it says, anyone who's not circumcised should be cut off from the people. They're a covenant breaker. They're not allowed in. There's this place in Exodus where Moses is on his way to redeem the people from, from Egypt. And it says God tries to kill him because he didn't circumcise his son. It's a strange, it's a really bizarre account. But, what it, but really what you're seeing is Moses refusing to identify with God's people, refusing to be obedient. And God says that's, that means judgment. So circumcision is important. Why would we not circumcise Christians? That's what they're saying. Leviticus, written down into the law that on the eighth day, every male must be circumcised. And so if, if circumcision was that important to God then, why would he change it now? If that's how you are a part of God's, seen as part of God's people. 
Could you push back against that? I mean, this, this is not just important to your understanding of the gospel. It's important to how you communicate, how to read the Bible to other people outside the church. Because we're accused of being inconsistent because we wear clothes of uh, different materials and we eat shrimp. We don't follow all the laws in Leviticus. Uh, we don't think they apply to us anymore because of what Christ has done. And so when, we, when the church then argues for a traditional sense of marriage, they, they say, well, you're just being inconsistent. That doesn't make sense. Same kind of arguments. And so we need, to, we need to look at this. Circumcision is a part of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament. And it's all about whether you're clean or unclean. And let's, let's break this down. Because it seems like the laws were endless. You had to pay attention as God's people whether the food, there were food you could and couldn't eat. The meat, it depended on what kind of hooves it had, what kind of food they were eating. If you ate it, you were unclean. If you didn't eat it, you were clean. Uh, there were clothes you could and couldn't wear. You had to look different. Uh, there were, you couldn't touch anything that was dead. If you touched anything that was dead, you were unclean. Skin diseases could make you unclean. You just woke up in the morning with some kind of rash. You had to leave the community. Women menstruating were unclean. Bodily discharges made you unclean. I mean, there were things that you couldn't control. If you just showed up and they happened to you, you were automatically set out, seen as an outcast, pushed outside of the community. It's a terrible thing. And if you're uncircumcised, you're also unclean. Because you're not going to care about the clean laws, because who's God? What should I care about what he thinks? And if so basically, what this whole idea is, if, there, if you're unclean, everyone, you would know that there's something wrong with you, and you would feel that way. It's the language of shame. You don't fit in. You aren't like the others. You're an outcast because of something you've done or has been done to you or something you're associated with. To be unclean would, to, would be to, to feel like you're damaged goods. And what's at stake is if you're unclean, you were not allowed not only to be a part of the people of God, to, to, to be physically next to people, to, to have community and fellowship, you weren't allowed into the tabernacle, into God's presence, to worship. So, so it was this reality of, yeah, you belong to God by grace, but to be able to experience his blessings, to experience his presence, you had to be clean because a holy God cannot come into the presence of people who are unclean. Not without harming us. What does it mean to be clean? I like the way uh, Counselor Ed Welsh puts it. He says, you know, to be clean, you know what it feels like? It feels like a, a cold shower at the end of a long, dirty working day. It just feels good. It's like a meal with good friends where you just stop thinking about yourself. All you're focused on is the food and the fellowship. Because really, to be clean is a part of, sh- it's what it means to be a part of shalom, where everything is as it should be, in relationship with one another, uh, in the immediate presence of God. Which meant to be unclean, to be clean, these things would have dominated every thought if you were going to try and be faithful to the God of Israel. It's going to make interactions with non-Jews almost impossible. 
if you want to remain clean, or you're going to spend all your time um, in the temple making sacrifices day in and day out. Because that was the whole idea. One, if behind these clean laws, it was designed to make the people of God separate, to, be, to look holy. It's really hard to date outside your faith if you know... <sighs> In their, in their world, right, if, you, if dating a non-Jew is going to make you uh, unclean, if you're going to be faithful to God, you have to choose. Who do I want to be with? I mean, there was, there was a real purpose behind in trying to mold and shape God's people to be different from the world. But it also had another purpose. It's to show that there is no way anyone can ever clean themselves up enough to get into the presence of God. It was meant to drive people crazy, to be, to be blunt, right? To, to show you how impossible it is, because if, if regular people are always finding themselves unclean and needing to go and, and kill a pigeon or a goat or a lamb to be cleansed by the blood to come in, and then the priests, the ones who are supposed to be the cleanest, the holiest, the closest to God, they were constantly making sacrifices. They, too, were unclean. It's... it's it's just communicating that one simple truth that no one can ever clean themselves up to be acceptable to God. No matter what you do. Even the best of us. I mean, the, the high, well, we'll talk about it in a moment. <coughs> it's communicating this truth that sin defiles and something needs to be done to clean, to clean us up. And so, Isaiah 64.6 should have been a familiar verse to these false brothers. That all our best deeds has made us like a filthy rag. And that, that's taming it, to not gross you out. All our best deeds are um, like a, a woman's time of the month. It means you're unclean and outside. That you can go to church, you can read your scriptures, you can be as moral as possible. It's still not going to clean you up. Right, or, or Zechariah chapter 3, the holiest of the holies, the high priest, is the one who is able to go into the holy of holies once a year. And there's this picture of Joshua standing in the presence of God, and he's covered in filth, filthy garments. He's covered in, in dung. It's this language, sin defiles, it makes us gross, it makes us feel dirty. And I know that's, it's really strong language, and it might seem strange to you, but Maybe not. We've all done stuff where you feel dirty afterwards. And it would make sense if, I'll put, I'll put it this way, my grandparents were dairy farmers. And I was helping milk one day and got kicked right in the chest and thrown into the gutter and was covered head to toe in manure. I was not allowed into the house. <laughs> if physically, externally, if we don't let people who are filthy in our home, why would God let those who have filthy hearts, hearts not longing for him, into his home? Right? It's, that's what sin does. It defiles. It makes us feel disgusting. We all are aware of these things. I mean, just go through middle school. <laughs> Relive it. Probably don't. It's terrible. It's hard. Because you're becoming more aware of what sin does and what people think and right, sin defiles. We use this language all the time. I mean, 
People will say your life is trash. It's garbage. It's crap. It's the language of clean and unclean again. Or as one uh, famous Cuban dancer put it, this guy named Carlos Acosta, he says, when I was younger, he's now world famous in the world of dance, but when I was younger and I went to boarding school, I used to talk to the cockroaches. Because, well, he says, because we and I, me and the cockroaches had a lot in common. Everyone detested us. I'm unclean, is what he was saying. You live in this world for any length of time. Something will be done to you, by you, or be associated with you that'll make you unclean. And nothing you can do can clean it up. <coughs> That's the whole point. Which is what makes the gospel so astounding, because when you read the statements that Paul makes later, he uses the ceremonial language. Listen to Colossians 1.22. So Jesus' death put a, the end to the ceremonial law. This is what it says. It says, Yet now, God has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, Christ has brought you into his own presence. And here it is. You are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. You hear that? It says you're clean. I'm reading the New Living Translation for that. It says that Christ right now, this is what God sees right now if you are in Christ. He sees you holy and blameless, standing before him without a single fault. Clean. Or Hebrews 10.14, by one offering, God forever made perfect those he is making holy. And because sins have been forgiven, there's no more need for sacrifices to clean yourself up. That was the point all along. To see that you and I could never make ourselves holy and blameless without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To end, to, to end the constant obsession with am I in or am I out? Am I in or am I out? Am I clean or am I unclean? Christ shows up and says, if you believe in me, you are in. Nothing can ever change that. By one offering, he's made you perfect. And then he's going to work the rest of your life to make that actually happen. At the end, we won't get there on this side of heaven. <laughs> but he's forever working out our imperfections. Right? So, we, I'll talk about Zechariah chapter 3 again. These are, these are the kinds of arguments Paul would have to be making. The ceremonial law is dead. It died on, with Christ. This amazing picture where Joshua, the high priest, the one who was supposed to be the best of the best. He, it was an honor to be the high priest. And the, the picture is he's standing in the presence of the Lord, and Satan is there accusing, saying, what business does this guy have to be in God's presence? Look at him, his clothes are filthy. He's been defiled. And the Lord says to Satan, get lost. He's like a stick I've pulled from the flames. I've chosen him. I love him. And then it goes down and says, Joshua's clothes were... We're filthy as he stood before the angel of the Lord. And this angel and the Lord said, Take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Joshua, the angel said, Look, I've taken away your sins, and now I'm giving you these fine new clothes. As you read the rest of the chapter, God says, The day is coming where I'm going to do that for all my people. By one offering, God and the death of Jesus Christ made forever perfect made us forever perfect in him. 
That's amazing. You see, now do you see the problem with the theology that these false brothers were saying? They're saying Jesus' perfection, his righteousness, was not enough. Saying you have to add to it. You're not clean until you, unless you keep yourself clean. Jesus is not enough, is what they were saying. And Paul says, that is blasphemy. You may look and talk and sound like a Christian, but you're not a Christian because you don't care about Christ the way we do. They're saying that God's clothes given to us in the gospel are not clean enough, so that's why you have to be circumcised. That's why you have to f- observe all these feast days and worry about what you eat and what you wear. Well, the doctrine of justification by faith, as you read, read on here, it's this idea that the perfect righteousness of Christ has been given to us and it covers all of our remaining imperfections like a stainless robe. And sin can no longer defile you. It, it just bounces off. You're clean. And so, when you think about what the gospel is saying then, is I know some of us here still feel ugh, defiled, like, sit, like, we're not, like this isn't true. But what it's saying is that Christ, as he climbed the hill to the cross, what he was doing was putting on your clothes that are filthy. And that God judged him for that. And he gave you his clothes, his robe, of righteousness for you to wear the rest of your life for eternity. And doing something wrong after that doesn't mean he's taken his clothes back. You're forever clean in Christ, blameless. So if anyone ever says to you, cleanliness is next to godliness, <laughs> clean your room, brush your teeth, right? Just, <laughs> it's like, be gone. <laughs> Like clean your room because your mom and dad tell you to clean your room and it's filthy. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the whole idea. Is Christ has forever removed the demands of the ceremonial law. You're in. Paul did not t- submit one lick. So, let's work out some of these implications and we'll end. Who do you think is more free? We lived a moment for the life of an Old Testament believer. Those who have to constantly obsess over what they eat are those who really hear Christ say, Everything, every food is clean. You can eat whatever you want. Who has more freedom? The one who's meticulously ordering their lives to impress God or always wondering if your failure is going to get you tossed out the door or the one who knows that you really are accepted? Forever. Right? You see, freedom was at stake here. That's what this confrontation is all about. We got to work. This is really practical. How are you going to evaluate whether teaching is helpful for you or not? Do they talk about obedience in the context of grace and the gospel? Can can the books you're reading, can the teachers you're listening to, could could it be said in a mosque or a synagogue? So. If it's true, it's probably not distinctly Christian. It might teach you to be good, and that's fine. You should be nice. (laughs) But it won't be Christian. But what we also see then here, if you go back to any other way of living your life without the close of the gospel that you've been given, Paul says in verse, look at it here, four, that you're giving up your freedom. You're going back to slavery. 
we're going to look at these. Faith, faith in Christ alone makes you acceptable. You're wearing your life with these stainless robes of righteousness. And if you go back, you can still live your life in spiritual slavery. These are the things Paul was fighting for. Do you know what it looks like? Always, always at the end of the day, crying out for forgiveness, begging Jesus to come back into your heart because you failed. That's spiritual slavery. Does it sound familiar? I mean, that's where I was when I was a kid. And then you run straight back to the law to try and impress God and make him proud. No, it's spiritual slavery. Or there's this great line from Flannery O'Connor that, I don't know if you know it, she was a novelist, where she says there was this deep, black, wordless conviction in this character that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And what she was saying is very similar here, that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid doing anything bad. And so think about being a teenager. The way to keep your parents off your back was just to obey. They're not going to pay as close attention if you're, you're back, in, back in time for your curfew. Just because you're good doesn't mean you have a relationship. Or you know you're in spiritual bondage when you look at yourself and say things like, God, look what I've done. Look at, look at all this hard work I've done for you. Why is my life not any better? More comfortable. I'm a decent person. I've been slaving for you all for all these years. That's spiritual slavery. You're not acting like a son. Like, like you have the full attention of the Father wrapped in the clothes of Jesus Christ. And all this to say is that a, a breakthrough from freedom, or from bondage to freedom, does not take place until you can stop and say, I've been forever clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. Fully accepted. And that you shouldn't add nothing. Nothing more added will ever make you more clean. Second, and this will be the last one here. We still live our lives in social slavery. That's what Paul's pointing out as an example of what, what the freedom that you have in the gospel is you don't have to play favorites anymore. I mean, he said repeatedly when he looked at the apostles, James and John and Peter, they, they, they seemed important, but they weren't really that important. They're just human beings. Their externals, all, their, all that time spent with Jesus was, yeah, that was a gift from God to them. They have authority as apostles, but who they are makes no difference to me. I'm not going to be mesmerized by externals. God doesn't pay attention to the externals. He looks at the heart. So what it means is, if you understand that you live your life wrapped in these righteous robes of Christ, you'll stop playing favorites. You'll look at people differently. Because you recognize that underneath the clothes that, that you're still growing into is, is still sin. So you can't push, push back from people who are different than you. That's what, that's what the externals do. They call us and say, look at that person, that's amazing. Fall down at their feet. Do what they say because they, they seem important. Paul says the gospel sets you free from that. He demonstrates it. Literally, it says, God does not receive the face. That's the, the literal Greek translation. He doesn't look at the face. So, test it. Are you living in social slavery? How do you look at the poor? I mean, Paul ends here by saying, 
That's the one thing I was eager to do. Do you see them as irresponsible, lazy? You know, maybe if they just got, got off their, their backside and did something once in a while? Or do you see them as a mirror? Somebody who, except for the grace of God, I would be in the exact same place. And someone like you, stained by sin in need of assistance. The, change, the gospel changes the way you see people. Another test. How, how afraid are you of what other people think? I mean, this robe of righteousness is described as a breastplate in Ephesians 6, which means it can take, it can take some hits if people don't like you. Right? If, it means if they get mad at you because you're more free, you can, you can handle it. Because God still loves you. You're, you're clean in Christ. So that it means then as Christians, if we go out to fight for the truth of the gospel and we are rejected because people don't want to hear about our religion. You're not kicked out. You're not a failure. You have a the stainless robe of righteousness. Right? The gospel is about freedom. Christ came to set us free, and that's what Paul stood for here. And he set us free from forever having to clean ourselves up. You're holy and blameless in him. And so, I'll just as a church, I'll just end this way, to, to think about right, what kinds of, how is the gospel setting you free to love one another? Who, who, who would you rather not have at your table because they make you uncomfortable? Right, I, I was going to talk about cultural slavery and the, the, the things that aren't scriptural. <laughs> or we just have ways that we do things, that, we, that people, they don't line up. We don't want them in our house. The gospel says, I'm supposed to set that free. I'm going to take that away from you. Now, will we as a church be comfortable eating as Jews and Gentiles together? Because Christ has bound us together in him. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white, rich or poor, Pastor, peasant, plumber, doesn't matter, whatever, any external doesn't matter. What matters, what binds us together is this, this gospel. See, Paul went to war for us in Jerusalem to stand for the truth so that we would be set free. That's, that's the climax in Galatians 5.1. Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work you did through Paul and Barnabas and Titus, having the courage to go into what had to be a hostile environment in some ways, and to stand firm, to hold on to the beautiful truth that we are fully accepted in Christ, that we are no longer unclean in him. I pray that those here who do not know that truth uh, would fall down at the feet of the cross, seeing how we've defiled ourselves and others, cry out for mercy, and then hear the angels rejoice as the Father welcomes them home.
And for those of us as believers, we have all these different places where we're trying to figure out um, how to put the gospel to work in our lives. Um, I pray that you would set us free from uh, our own standards that keep us separated from those you've put around us. Make us a welcoming community, one where all people are welcome, no matter who they are or what they've done, so that we might point them to our great Savior who's made us clean. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.